come now to our text. It's in 2 Thessalonians. I'll try to be short. We only have three verses. As we come to this, we've seen many things. As we've rejoined the letter, we've seen Paul offer thanksgiving for the the church of Thessalonica, the believers that make up that church, a remarkable group of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Christians that had accomplished much growth in a short amount of time, had done many great things for the Lord, uh, people who have in their young walk of faith encountered persecution. He charged them to stand fast in the traditions that he'd given them. That's the gospel and the apostles' doctrine, the teachings. He said those things that we've taught you in person or by epistle. He offered a prayer for them that God would comfort them and establish them. And then as we began the third chapter, he said, pray for us. He asked for prayer for the mission team, the the missionaries, the apostolic team that was going out and moving from area to area and starting churches and getting them established and preaching the gospel. He said, pray for us. Why? That the gospel would fly would move speedily, no hindrance. It would just move from place to place. It would spread in remarkable ways. How do you explain the gospel moving as quickly as it had at certain times in the days of the early church, in that apostolic age, other than to say God freed it up, He let it move. Every wall that was slowing it down, every obstacle in the way, God knocked them down and it flew. And Paul says, pray that as we go out, the gospel will fly, move speedily. I said at the time, we need to be praying that today, that the gospel would just speed and move into new places. But Paul recognizes for that to happen, the other part of that prayer needs to be answered, which is that it would be received and even honored. Honored as what it is, the very word of God. So Paul says, pray for that. And then he prays also for deliverance. He says, from wicked and evil men, men who would seek to stop us, and then he describes them, doesn't he? Look again there that the verse we read a minute ago. He said, and that we may be delivered, this is verse 2, from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So that's a great deal to hope for and to pray for. That's a long list of things in a very short amount of text that Paul says, I'm praying for, expecting, hoping, seeking, interceding on your behalf for asking you to intercede on my behalf and Timothy's behalf and Silas's behalf. I think he would say all of the apostles' behalf. All those things. Now, how could Paul expect such a tall order to be met? You ever feel like you're asking for too much? Maybe Paul's asking for too much, is he? What confidence does Paul have that such a tall order can be met? How can he expect all these prayers to be answered? Well, maybe he'll give us the answer in today's text. Let's read it. It starts out in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Who will establish you and guard you from the evil one? And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you will do, uh, that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now, as we begin this today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, Paul's direct answer. Paul's direct answer. He answers his own question directly. Second of all, his important connection. Paul says something that the church needs to hear and make a connection that Paul 
uh, makes a connection about. And lastly, Paul's loving prayer. Paul finishes in verse 5 with a loving prayer. We're going to close with that. So beginning first with Paul's direct answer, I also thought about blunt answer uh, as maybe a title for this because it is blunt. It's, it cuts away all other things that are necessary and Paul gets right down to it. What is his hope in? Well, I want us to begin uh, with what we considered in the introduction, all that Paul is asking for. How can Paul expect all these things to be answered again? Think about this. He's desiring that the Thessalonian believers continue to grow in their faith. Now, that's a major thing, that they would continue to grow in their faith. He's desiring that they hold fast to the truth in which they have been instructed. He's praying that they would stand fast in the face of opposition, even persecution, even severe persecution. And what's more, he prays that through all of it, God would comfort them, that God would comfort them. He also seeks that they would be established in every good word and work. Again, a lot to ask for. Now, that list is a list really on a macro level to begin with, but Paul says, I've got some more things to add to it. He seeks prayer for the mission team, that they will be used mightily by God. And he means specifically that the gospel will move out unhindered into new places and and move powerfully. And he also seeks that as it goes into new places, that it will be received and honored as the very Word of God. Honored as the Word of God. That the missionaries will be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now all that's a lot to pray for. And uh, you might ask why Paul would, would... be expecting that such a long list would be uh, answered. And before we look at that, I want us to again think that Paul is giving all this in the context that that deliverance is because he's facing and encountering regularly unreasonable and wicked men. And then he words it uh, that for not all have faith. And some translations say for not all are faithful. But having it in the phrasing of not all have faith is important because in the original Greek it's worded that way. And we'll see why that's important in just a moment. But that's a lot to ask for. Paul is literally asking for a laundry list of concerns. Maybe when you go to prayer, you have a laundry list of concerns, of things that you're asking God for. So why does Paul have confidence that these things will be answered, that God will be at work to do the very things that he's asking for? Well, all we have to do to find the answer is just read the very first verse. Paul says, but the Lord is faithful. Paul's confidence is in the faithfulness of the Lord, that the Lord will do all these things. Now, it's important for a moment to see what Paul is saying here. Uh, My translation here, the the New King James says, but the Lord is faithful. But actually, if you go back to the original Greek, the end of verse 2 ends with the word faith, as it does in, in ours, but there's no punctuation. It's not a separate sentence in the original Greek. I say this all the time, but it's true. It is hard to translate from one language to another. It's difficult because sentence structure is different. Where words are placed in the sentences are different. There's all kinds of things. And sometimes the wordplay in the original language can be lost in the translation. One of the things that's difficult, if you go back into the, uh, the Old Testament, so often in the Torah, so much of the wordplay that's there where Hebrew words are used in kind of wordplays gets lost in translation. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that it'll happen. But here is an interesting one that would have caught your attention in the Greek because Paul ends with, not all have faith. 
pistis, that's that word in Greek, it means faith. Not all have it. Not all have faith. And then he begins the next phrase with a slightly different word. He goes to this word pistos, which is faithful. Now that's going to get your attention when you hear somebody say pistis, pistos. You would normally hear those back to back. But Paul is contrasting here the faithlessness of some with the utter and perfect faithfulness of God. He doesn't want you to miss it. He's worded it in just that way. Unfortunately, we can't do that in English in the same way. Uh, The sentence would be too clumsy. But Paul did it in the original Greek. And Paul wants us to notice that he's talking about a contrast. There is an obstacle from time to time. There are many obstacles that get in our way as we seek to take the gospel out because many do not have faith. Faithful is our God. Our God is faithful. Even the way we use this word but here as a contrasting word, they are without faith, but our God is faithful. My friends, that's where Paul's confidence is. In the faithfulness of God, the perfect faithfulness of God. Isn't it interesting this contrast? Reminds me of Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Stand with God's truth. No matter what men say, no matter what the world says, let God be true, but every man a liar. Let all men be faithless, but God is faithful. That's what Paul is saying. It's in his perfect faithfulness that God, uh, that Paul knows that God is at work. It's God's will, Paul believes and knows. Not just believes, but knows that it's God's will that the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. How does Paul know that? God has said it. They don't have the written gospels, but Paul has been taught by Christ directly. He knows the other apostles who were there. They heard it. That it should go out to the ends of the earth. Paul knows that. He knows it's God's will that that should happen. It's God's will that His people should grow in their faith. It's God's will that His people should be comforted. It's God's will that His people hold fast and know the truth. It's God's will that His people stand fast on that truth. It's God's will that His people often be delivered from the hands of enemies. And He knows that God has delivered us from the slavery of sin and death. Now all these things Paul knows because they're expressed in one way or another in the Word of God. God has revealed them directly to us. In other words, Paul is simply praying the Scriptures. He's not making up his own request. He's saying, uh, I'm praying that the Gospel will go out. It will reach the ends of the earth. I'm praying that God will grow you in your faith. If you want to know how to have your prayers answered more frequently, pray this way. All Paul is doing is saying, read the Scriptures and let them guide your prayer life. Pray according to the will, the revealed will of God. He is offering us, if you will, kind of a clinic in what it means to pray. So often we say, well, our prayers are never answered, but we're praying for things that aren't promised to us. That doesn't mean that we can't pray for things that aren't promised here, but it just means Paul knows to start your prayers and anchor your prayers in the revealed will of God. Pray according to His will, we're told over and over again. We're also told at other times to pray for things that are on our heart, things that we desire. That's okay. But recognize that God is at work in the things that He has said and promised, the things He has revealed. So Paul knows that. Paul is praying the Scriptures, confident that God keeps His Word. I need to say something here. Paul doesn't believe this is a magical incantation. So many people today say, 
Uh, find a scripture in the in the uh, find a scripture that you want to use. Pray it, and God must do it. Be careful ever about saying God has to do what you say He has to do. My friends, Paul recognizes there are some things that he's not abreast of. His timing may not be God's timing. As he says, God, send the the gospel into some new place. Maybe Gaul. That's where Paul wants to go, right? Ultimately, Paul wants to go to what is now Spain and preach the gospel. That is his desire. But guess what? It might not be the Lord's timing. Over and over, Paul keeps getting... uh, or dealing with some frustration level of, I want to go to Rome, but it hasn't worked out. But Paul understands it's in the Lord's timing, not my timing. So again, we have to recognize that it's not a magical incantation. We pray according to God's will, recognizing that God will work it out in His time. And there are some things that only God will ever know. As Paul says, pray for deliverance. Paul recognizes that even those things are mysterious to us. We can go to the book of Acts and see Peter delivered. The prayers of the saints answered, and Peter is delivered, but James is not. James is not. My friends, we have to leave some of these things and understand that they are God working in ways that we can't understand, but working according to His will to do and accomplish His good will. So my friends, these truths don't deter Paul from being faithful in prayer, knowing that God answers prayers which are according to His perfect will. In fact, Paul is modeling the way that we ought to pray. There's a great book by D.A. Carson. It's changed names recently. Uh, I'll get the title, the new title for you uh, next week, but it's a book on praying with Paul, Paul's prayer life. And he walks through the prayers of Paul and uses them as a model for you to help understand how Paul was praying so that you can incorporate that in your life. It's a great book, a great book, a useful book. They changed the name. I don't think it was selling as well as they hoped, so they retitled it and, and put it out again. But, uh, but that's a good book because, again, it uses Paul's prayers as a model for how we can pray. It uses scriptural prayers as a model for our prayers. And so, again, uh, we should know that we need to know the scriptures and pray according to the scriptures. So that's important. And that brings us to our second point. Paul is specifically trying to connect a couple of things that we need to recognize. I said Paul's interesting connection as my title for the second point. I think it is an interesting connection. But it's an important connection. I'm confident of that. Paul is specifically tying God's faithfulness to something, isn't he? The confidence that God will both establish them, the very thing he just prayed for, that God will establish them and that he will guard them against the evil one. Against the evil one. Now, you can see that for yourself as you read the text. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. It's right there. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, it's important for us to think about this for a minute. There is a confidence that Paul has. He is persuaded. That's what that word literally means. He is persuaded that he can count on these things happening. That the Lord will establish his people, establish them on the truth and in the truth, and that he will protect them from the evil one. Now, my friends, that is reason for joy when you think about it. To know that you've got some measure against the evil wiles, darts, fiery arrows of the evil one, that is a reason to be thankful. 
And so as we think about Paul saying, we, the mission team, have a confidence, patho, a confidence that God is going to do this, that He's going to both establish you and also that He is going to protect you or guard you against the evil one. My friends, he's saying that's something that's true for believers. That's something that we have in Christ. A foundation, an establishing, and also we have a guarding against the evil one. My friends, that's a reason to be thankful. But it's interesting because Paul, as he's talking about being established in these truths, we've got to go back to what he was talking about. What were the things that he said to be established in? Those things that we taught you. Those things that we brought you. What were those things? The gospel and the apostolic traditions and the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is saying, be established in these things. Have your foundation set in the word of God. They didn't have the New Testament as we do now. But Paul says, what you have be established in. And the things that we've taught you, the commands that we've given you that are according to the word and will of God brought to you, inspired by the Holy Spirit, those things set a foundation on and God is establishing you in those things. Now again, my friends, you have a confidence as a Christian that God is doing that in your life. Paul's not just saying there's something unique about the Thessalonians here. He's saying God works in this way according to His will to establish His people in the Word and to guard them against the evil one. But Paul goes even further than that. Even further than that in his persuasion of what the Lord is doing. And by the way, before I move on to that next thing, let me beat a drum that I beat often around here, which is notice where his confidence is placed. Notice again, as he moves in, that the Lord is faithful, will establish you, guard you from the evil one. He says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Now, you could break that sentence up a little bit different to make it even clearer. Concerning you, we have confidence in the Lord. Notice a theme I've kind of hit on several times in the last month or so. Paul says, God is at work in you. I'm confident of that because I have a confidence in him. Not in you. I mean, Paul loved the Thessalonians. He thought highly of them. But ultimately, he wasn't hedging his bet on them. Their ability, their faithfulness. He was hedging his bet on God's faithfulness. God's will. God's working in them. He says, look, I have a confidence in the Lord concerning you. In other words, I believe these things will come to pass, not because they rest on you, but because they rest in Him. He's the one at work in you to do these things. So what does he have a confidence in? Well, simply this, that you do, that you both do now and will continue to do the things that we have commanded you. Now, my friends... That is an interesting wording. Interesting wording. Paul says, as we are, uh, as I see the Lord at work in you, and I have a confidence that He is at work in you, I'm recognizing that I have a confidence in God that He will grow you in obedience to the commands of God. Now, you think about it. What Paul is saying is that his confidence in their growth and obedience to the commands of God are ultimately based in God's faithfulness. Why? Because it's God who's sanctifying them. It's God who's at work in them to sanctify them. So Paul says, I have a confidence that you're growing in your faith, that you're growing in obedience, that you're being sanctified because God is faithful to His people. Now I want to say this, that doesn't lessen 
in Paul's mind, my mind, and hopefully your mind, our own responsibilities to strive toward obedience. Sanctification works in just this way. We are given the commands of Scripture. If the Bible tells you a particular thing is a sin, you are to battle against it. In fact, Paul makes it clear to be at war or even, as he puts it, to be putting to death sin in the flesh. To be mortifying sin in the flesh, that is something we are commanded to do. But what Paul wants us to realize and what he wants them to realize is it's not possible outside of the work of the Spirit in you. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be at war with sin in the flesh in the way that we're called to do it. So Paul reminds them that nothing that he's talking about is possible without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work in the people of God to do just this, to transform them. Now, why is this important? I said this is important today to the church, to our church, to any church, because we live in an age that is kind of steering off one side of the road or the other. And, you know, many theologians say good theology is like a road with a ditch on either side. I think uh, me and Allison were listening to a sermon not too long ago in which the person said it's like walking a tightrope and you can fall off one side or the other. But, um, but when you think about it, that's true. There are two directions you can err. And when it comes to these things, you can become, become totally works-based, think my salvation is up to me, I'm delivered by my obedience, and I will progress in my obedience. And that's on one extreme, Right? in which you're, you're missing the boat because Paul says we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone. And the other side of the road that you can fall off into a ditch is to say, hey, we're saved by grace. Nothing matters anymore. All bets are off. Behave the way you want. There's no rules. I don't quote commercials very often, but you may remember a Little Caesars commercial a few years ago where a guy ripped off his shirt and says, there's no more rules. There are rules. There are rules. You'll find it out in Little Caesars or on the Day of Judgment. But there are rules. And what Paul is saying is here, don't steer off the side of the road that makes you think being obedient to God doesn't matter any longer. Paul would have us remember time and again that obedience to God matters. We are saved by grace, Paul says, but it's to something and unto something. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to listen to where Paul goes in speaking about our justification. Because again, our justification, we are saved by grace alone, by faith in Christ alone. But what about after we are saved, after we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, who pours out the love of God into our hearts, who transforms us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are being transformed. Well, what does Paul say about it? Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. That's justification. You were dead in sin. Now you were alive in Christ, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You were once a son of disobedience. You were once working according to the power and under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, the, the evil one, as Paul said uh, in the other text we were just looking at in 2 Thessalonians among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Notice what drove us in our past life before we uh, were transformed by the grace of God. We were driven by the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling them, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, 
who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now all that is about how we are justified. But listen to what he says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My friends, we can't get it wrong. We can't get it wrong. We don't honor God to try to argue some works-based salvation. But we also don't honor God by being antinomians and throwing out everything that God has declared to us about what is right and good that we are to live in according to His will and word. The beauty of what we walked through in Romans at length a few years ago is that Paul explains to us, explains to us, that God has transformed us for a purpose, that we would walk in an empowerment that we did not have before. That what the law was powerless to do, which is save us, God has by His grace delivered us through Christ Jesus and empowered us by the Spirit that we might walk in obedience as a transformed people. Not a people who purchase themselves. We can't do that. Paul is not making that mistake. We can't purchase ourselves. Christ purchased us on Calvary's cross. But my friends, Christ purchases you not to leave you in the muck and the mud He found you in. That's why you're given the Holy Spirit. That's why you are being transformed, sanctified, put on a path of discipleship. That you would grow in faith and obedience to Him. We are saved by grace, Paul says, unto good works. Why? Because that honors God. We are justified by what Christ has done and even our sanctification. As much as we are active in it and we are called to be active in it, we are given instruction for that end and purpose. But even our, justific- our sanctification, excuse me, even our sanctification at its heart is a work of God in us as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. As He works in us to help us remember His Word and be sanctified in His truth. And grow in our faith and walk and good works unto Him. So Paul says, I have confidence that you are not only now doing what God has called you to do. In other words, what Paul says, what we have commanded you. Paul doesn't mean I have come up with some commandments in myself in person. Paul means the very things God has sent me here to command you. Paul says, I'm confident that you're not only now doing them, but will continue to do them because I know of God's faithfulness. That if God began a good work in you, He will see it through to the day of completion. And that means it starts with justification, and it moves through sanctification, and it ends when we are glorified with Him forevermore. Paul says God's not a quitter. He doesn't begin something and then drop it. If He started this work, He'll bring it to fruition. One of the great ways that's an evidence of our walk of faith is that God is working in us in just this way. So Paul says he knows that they will continue to grow in their obedience because 
God has transformed them, given them the Spirit, and is at work in them. I want to close today with our third point. It'll be very quick. Paul's loving prayer. Paul ends with a prayer here. Now may the Lord direct your hearts. And this could be a benediction, but we talked about a benediction is kind of like a prayer. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Paul wants them to fo- focus, first of all, on the love of God. And second of all, on the steadfastness or patience of Christ. How do we get through tough valleys? One foot in front of the next. One foot in front of the other, I should say. Step by step. There's no easy way through difficult times in life, is there? There's times where the the difficulty and the pain is so severe, we don't know how we're going to make it through the next day. Paul says focus on two things. The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ and take it one step at a time. One step at a time. One step today, another step tomorrow, another step the next day, and the next thing you know, you get through the valley. You get through the valley. My friends, the Lord would remind us of this very thing in His Word. Paul is reminding us of this very thing. And so as we think about this, I want to say it's interesting that we're thinking about the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ on Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is a day, as I said earlier, is a day that remembers an early church martyr, early church Christian who was instrumental at a time in which Rome cracked down on Christians, a time of very unpopularity. I guess it was unpopular to be a Christian. And uh, during that time, they uh, said no Christian ministers can, can conduct marriages and all kinds of stuff that, you know, you can imagine just everyday persecution. And St. Valentine said, you know, God commanded me to do these things as a minister. If a Christian couple comes to me, I'm going to conduct a a wedding. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm not going to stop. And he was rounded up. They said, throw him in jail. Put him with the martyrs. That'll show him that uh, he's next if he doesn't stop what he's doing. I think he was instructed by Peter, who when the Sanhedrin said to him, stop preaching the name of Jesus, or we're going to do some bad things to you. Your life may be taken from you. What did the apostles say? Is it right that we obey you rather than God? St. Valentine said, uh, I've got to continue to preach the gospel. I've got to continue to do things that God has called me to do. And even when they put him in the jail cell with the Christians who were arrested to be put into the, the Colosseum and killed by wild beasts and all sorts of terrible methods, their plan backfired. Instead of them putting fear into the hearts of Valentine... Valentius, I believe, was his name. He brought peace to their hearts as he preached the gospel to these people who were marked for death. Preached the gospel to them. Gave them the comfort of God. And so he joined them, going to his death. How in the world that came to be a holiday where we celebrate by going, hey, here's some candy shaped like this or like that. I don't know. But it's good for us to remember the real reason for this day. That he was remembered throughout church history as a brave man, a man who loved others more than himself. That if it meant he had to lay down his life for his brothers, he would do so. And he would try to bring them peace and comfort on the path there. My friends, Paul is saying, if you're going through a valley, if you're having some difficulty, focus on the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. My friends, we need to do the same thing. Amen.